Please turn with me to John chapter 1. We're in John chapter 1, verse 1, starting the book of John this morning. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. We love to give away Bibles here at Rocky Mountain Calvary. At the back doors, you'll find Bibles, and those are for you to uh, take home and to be able uh, to study. Last night, as we were headed to church, just about 5 o'clock, it was 4.55 and pulling out of our neighborhood, there was a beautiful sunset. I don't know if you happened to catch it last night, but it's one of the most beautiful sunsets that I've seen here in Colorado. And I had to pull the car over and just enjoy it for a few moments. And the sunset only lasts for five minutes or so, and then it's gone, you know. I called Amber, my wife, and I was like, you got to see this. you got to go outside and you got to look at this, this sunset. And it causes us to reflect upon God's glory, that God shows his love to us by putting a beautiful sunset in the sky. And I want to encourage us as we study the Gospel of John to stop and to behold the glory that's revealed through Jesus Christ, to really gaze upon who Jesus is. Even in these first 18 verses, we have an incredible introduction of who Christ is. Before we get into the Gospel of John, let's go over the background a little bit of this Gospel. Who's the author of this book? We believe it to be John the Disciple. It seems really clear as you look at the internal evidence that it's John the Disciple. He never refers to himself by his own name. He always refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think there's two reasons for that. One is he knew his identity was in the love of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? To know, no matter what, I am loved by Christ. But also, he didn't want to draw attention to himself. John writes a different type of gospel than the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are synoptic gospels where they look at the events, the details of Christ's life, where John doesn't try to record everything. He focuses just on seven miracles, seven signs. Could you imagine walking with Christ for those three years? John said there's, there's so much about Christ that all of the books of the world could not contain it. And then you're trying to whittle it down to seven miracles that you're going to focus on. Maybe it's just a pastor thing, but I think it's always harder to give less information than more. <laughs> it's harder to give a 30-minute sermon than a 50-minute sermon. You're saying, I know, right? But he whittles it down, and he focuses on seven miracles and also seven I am statements. And the reason that he did this is because the purpose of the book is in chapter 20, verse 31, and he writes and he says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. Christ means Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in him. In his name. So the reason that John's writing is that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And through believing that we would experience life, the life that God has for us. So let's jump right in. Let's look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is Jesus Christ. The Word is a title that is given to Christ. It's very fitting that he would be called the Word. Because all of the written word points to Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word. The point here is that that we see the eternal existence of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not created by the Father because he's God. So he's always been in existence. 
When the beginning came about and God created the heavens and the earth, God was already there. The sun was already there. Christ was there. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. The fellowship that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have together. Very quickly in the book of Genesis, we're introduced to the Trinity. We see the Trinity active in creation. The Hebrew word Elohim that we translate into the English word God, it's plural. So plural, but yet pointing to one God. It's the mystery of the Trinity. So don't misunderstand. We don't have three gods. There's one God, but yet three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Word was in the beginning. Jesus was in the beginning, but also the Word was with God. So we're beholding his nature. We're seeing who Jesus is. And then the Word was God. Very clearly, Jesus is God. What you believe about Jesus Christ is the most important thing about you because it determines your salvation. There's some that have mistranslated this verse. The Jehovah's Witnesses, if you look at their Bible, has put this and says the word was a God. It's not a true Bible. It's a false religion. Notice how you can damage something so greatly by changing one small word from the word was God to the word is a God. They don't believe that Jesus is God. So when you're talking to people about Jesus, you have to examine what Jesus are you believing in. The Jehovah's Witnesses have a false Jesus. The Mormons have a false Jesus. They believe that Jesus and Satan were brothers. So they use the name Jesus, but they've created their own image of Jesus, and it's not the one true Jesus of the scriptures. Jesus is God. Is it important to believe that Jesus is God? Absolutely. Because otherwise, you simply have a man dying upon the cross. But with Jesus, you have the God-man, God in human flesh, where he was all man, but he's all God. And God is dying for our sins. How could it be that one man's sacrifice could result in the forgiveness of sins? Because it's God dying for our sins. Because it's complete holiness dying for our sins. So the word was God. Now we look at the work of Christ. We behold his work. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were created through him. Jesus is the creator. We look at the magnitude of creation. We think of how big the sun is. We think about how big the stars are. We think about the Milky Way galaxy. Someone was telling me this week about how many miles are on their car. They have a Honda that was like 341,000 miles. It's a 1997. And then they went on to tell me it's 225,000 miles to the moon. Like they've already driven their car to, to the moon and halfway back, right? And that kind of stuck with me in thinking about, man, the, the moon is 225,000 miles out there. But the Milky Way is a really small part of the galaxies. And there's many, many more galaxies. We don't even know how many galaxies they are. And the vastness of God's creation. But then there's the minute detail in God's creation as well. We look at an atom and we study an atom. So small, but yet so powerful. And God has created the atom and is holding the atom together. We look at DNA. 
all of the information that's packed into such a, a small amount of space. It blows the minds of scientists. God's the creator. Jesus is the creator, and nothing was made without him. Just like believing that Jesus is God, is it important to believe that Jesus is the creator, that God is the creator? Yes, absolutely, because if you don't, you're taking something away from God. You're, you're taking something away from who he claims to be. And when there's design, it demands that there's a designer. If I took out my phone and said, hey, this phone just evolved, you shouldn't believe it because Apple has made that phone, right? If I took up all of those pieces and just smashed it with a hammer and put it into a container and then just began to shake it for a million years. Well, let's just say for even five years, is it going to become a phone again? You'd be an idiot to be able to believe that, right? You look at me and say, what, what are you trying to sell me? What bill of goods are you trying to, to slip over me? Because there's design, there has to be a designer, and Jesus is the creator. He, Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. All things were created through him and for him. You may have questions about Jesus, and that's awesome. I hope that you have questions about Jesus. Maybe you're at a place where you're wondering and wrestling, do I believe that Jesus is God? Do I believe that he created all things? Examine that. There's great resources. Did Jesus exist? Did he die upon a cross? Is there historical evidence for his resurrection? Look into those things. But don't get too busy to ask the question about Christ. Make the time to seek out answers. Look at the evidence that's there for our faith. Because what you believe about Jesus determines your eternity. In verse 4, In him was life, and the life was light of men, and the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In him was life. The proof of this is the fact that Jesus created all things. He created life. He spoke life into existence. So in him was life. He contains life. His life here on earth is light into our darkness. Christ in human flesh lights up our darkness, but the darkness didn't comprehend it. The, the darkness chooses not to receive the light. Some respond to the light of Jesus Christ, but then some reject the light of Jesus Christ. We begin to see God's unfolding message because Genesis begins with what? Light. And God said, let there be light. Light into the darkness. Who is the spiritual light? Jesus Christ. God speaks life into existence, and here Jesus is life, and he is light. We just finished studying the book of Ecclesiastes, and I loved the book of Ecclesiastes, but I have been a little less depressed since I stopped teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. And we've been asking this question of where is life and where is abundant life and what's the meaning of life? And we turn here to John and we find the answer. Christ is life. It's in him that we experience life and experiencing him lighting up our darkness. Now we look at his forerunner, Christ's forerunner. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. A forerunner is someone who points people to someone who's coming. And John's job was to point people to Christ, and he was sent from God. That 
phrase captivates me. He was sent from God. God spoke to John. God stirred him and called him and said, John, I want your life to be set apart for the purpose of pointing people to Jesus Christ. John's background begins miraculously. His parents were never able to have kids. His father was a priest. As his father was serving in the temple, doing his priestly duties, God speaks to him and says, you're going to have a child. He didn't believe it. So the Lord, through the angel, says, you're going to be mute. You're not going to be able to speak until your child is born. That was John. The son that they had was John. We refer to him as John the Baptist because his ministry involved baptizing people, preparing them for Christ, the Messiah. He had a very unorthodox approach. A lot of times when people look at church planting, they say, location, location, location. Just like real estate. If you have a good location, you've got a good chance of planting a church. Not necessarily true. Because you need to be sent by God. You need to be called by God. And John went to the worst location. He was in the wilderness. You had to walk out into the wilderness to hear him preach. To hear him declare the message of God. His appearance did not fit in. His diet was grasshoppers. That's before organic eating was cool. Did you guys hear Trader Joe's is selling John the Baptist grasshoppers dipped in honey? Try it out for a Thanksgiving snack. I'm pulling your chain, but it could be a conversational starter this Thanksgiving if you just have a jar of grasshoppers. This wasn't the way people ate even then to be out in the wilderness surviving on grasshoppers. His appearance was one where he took camel's skin and made it into clothing, but he didn't care. He was who God called him to be And he declared the message of God. Throughout history, biblical history, church history, God is raising up individuals to point people to his son. God's wanting to stir hearts in these days to say, will you be like John the Baptist? Will you point people to Jesus? Will you prepare people for his second coming? In verse 7, this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that through him that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness of the light. John's job was not to be the source. He's not the light. He simply got to bear witness of the light. He experienced the light. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And sometimes we get this mixed up. We get our wires crossed. We think that we're gonna be the answer for someone. And it's very freeing. Be freed. You're not the light. I'm not the light. I'm not the Messiah. You're not the Messiah. We were never designed to be the Savior. There's only one Savior. There's only one light. That's Jesus Christ. And we simply get to bear witness of the light. John the Baptist never did a miracle, the scripture tells us. But it also then goes on to say everything that he spoke about Jesus was true. You may be used by God to do a miracle, or you may not. But who really cares? That's up to the Lord. But everything that we can speak about Christ is true. We can point people to Jesus Christ. A witness does share what they've seen, share what they've experienced. This is how word about good businesses travels, doesn't it? You go to a restaurant, you really enjoy it, and you bear witness of it. Like, man, you've 
You've got to go get this. On Halloween night, Chipotle was selling everything for $4. And I happened to go in there and get some dinner for the family. And I was so stoked. It's like, man, this is half price of what it normally is. And guess what I did? I bore witness about Chipotle. I mean, I was excited about everything being $4. I'll probably go again next year if they have the, the special going on. And that's the idea of bearing witness. We, we bear witness of who Jesus is. We taste and see that God is good. What has he done in your life? What is he doing in your life? What hope does he provide for you? In verse 9 That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Notice true light. We can easily miss that. That means that there's false light. There's counterfeit light. Satan comes as an angel of light in trying to deceive. A lot of deception comes with a false spiritual experience. Go ahead and just meditate. And by emptying your mind, you're going to open yourself up for a greater spiritual experience. God calls us to meditate, but it's not to empty our mind, it's to fill our mind with the knowledge of who God is. And you start to look around, and Satan oftentimes doesn't come in dark, creepy type of way, but he comes as a false light, as a counterfeit light. It looks good, it's attractive to us, but it's not the true light. Jesus is the true light, and Jesus came for everyone. He came for the world. Everyone has opportunity to respond to Christ. We behold his reception in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. These are huge statements. He was in the world. He made the world. He created the world, but yet he chose to come into the world. We'll talk about that more in verse 14. But the world does not know him. The world did not receive him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. His family rejected him. The nation of Israel largely rejected him. His hometown, he couldn't do very many miracles there because of their unbelief. His work was limited by their unbelief. In the world today, he's largely rejected. If you want to make people mad today, talk to him about Jesus. Say that he's the only way for salvation. Say that Jesus created you and he has a design for sexuality and you're going to get people really mad, right? Because Christ has been rejected. He continues to be rejected. If you're going through rejection in your life, isn't rejection painful? Doesn't it stink? No matter how many times you've been through rejection, if there's someone that you love, that you, you care for, and here Jesus created everything, he's God, and chooses to come into his creation in his grace, die for their sins, but then to be rejected, Christ understands rejection. One of the things that rejection provides us is an opportunity to know the suffering of Christ in a greater way. Because he was rejected. He understands rejection. He wants to comfort our hearts. In verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But as many have received him. 
How do you receive him? It says, who believe in his name. His name is his character, his nature. When you believe in Christ, that he's God, his death and resurrection for your sins, turn from your sin, ask him to be the Lord of your life, then you have the right to be called the child of God. Jesus came to bring us into a relationship with the Father that we are the children of God. This is not taking place by the will of men. It doesn't happen by blood, but it happens by God's work in our life. This means you can't be saved by association. You don't get to go, well, mom and dad were believers in Christ, so I must be all good without a decision to believe in Christ. No one's going to be able to go into heaven because they're like, well, grandma really loved you. I know grandma said some prayers for me. Didn't her faith get me in? We each have to look at Christ and choose to either receive him or to reject him. Last night before service, I was in my office. The church offices, a lot of our offices are right up here, upstairs on the the right-hand side. And there's a door that gets into our offices. And my office is kind of towards the, the back. And I'm reading over my notes and praying. And I hear a little knock on the door. Now that happens quite frequently, and I've got to be honest with you, I don't always leave my office to go check who's at the door. I'll usually wait about 30 seconds to see if some other staff member is going to get the door, right? I know, shame on me. Uh, But I recognize this knock, this little knock that was taking place at the the door. I knew it was my daughter, Eileen, our eight-year-old. So I very quickly left what I was doing I went to the door and opened the door and was like, come on in. And there was some popcorn, leftover popcorn. I'm like, you have some popcorn? And what's the difference? That's my daughter. That's my eight-year-old little girl. We have a special relationship. And that's the way it is with God. He recognizes your knock at his door. And he's like, oh, that's my son. That's my daughter. You, you have the right to be here. You have the privilege of being my, my child. That's why we're told in the book of Hebrews that we're able to come boldly into the presence of God. We're able to come right into the Holy of Holies because we're now children of God. We're now in Christ. You belong there because you are God's child. I don't know what's going on in your life. You may be having a terrible morning. Finances may be terrible. Relationships may be difficult. Physical health may not be going well. But if you're a believer in Christ and you've received Christ, you are the child of God. And you have something very special going on with God. You're his. You belong to him. Another translation of this verse says, to them he gave the authority to become the children of God. It's your place now. You're an adopted son. You're an adopted daughter of God. What an amazing gift that God has given to us. In verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we have looked at the nature of the word, God. We've looked at the work of the word, the creator. And understanding that Jesus is God and understanding that he is the creator, now the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Creator enters into his creation and is dependent upon his creation. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem through the virgin birth with Mary, 
He is completely dependent upon a teenager. That's some scary stuff, right? Mary's a first-time mom. What if she doesn't feed Jesus? What if she gets distracted? And here's Christ as an infant who can't take care of himself. He's all God, but he's all man. And in his humanity, he's dependent upon Mary and Joseph. The word became flesh so that we could behold the glory of the Father, that we could behold the love of God. This word tabernacled, this word dwelt, it means tabernacle, to take residency as if in a tent. Jesus literally came and moved into the neighborhood. And what a step down for Christ, right? There's probably some neighborhoods that we would not choose to move into. There's areas of Detroit that, I don't know about that, right? It's dangerous to to go and live there. Inner city Chicago. It's like, who's signing up to move into inner city Chicago? Prices are cheap. They're cheap for a reason, right? And here God chose to enter into our mess, enter into our darkness. Talk about moving into a bad neighborhood. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In the Old Testament, God had the children of Israel build a tent where his glory, his presence, he chose to put his presence there because God wanted to tabernacle with his people. But the people could not come into his presence because of their sin. When Jesus died upon the cross, the veil in the temple was torn in two in that moment and we're welcomed into God's presence. The whole reason that Jesus came was to bring us into the presence of God. Without Jesus coming in human flesh, we wouldn't know the glory of God in the same way. Isn't that true? We would know God's power from the Old Testament. We would know his holiness from the Old Testament, but we wouldn't know his love if it wasn't for Christ coming in human flesh. He knows what it's like to go through a Monday morning. He knows what it's like to be tempted with sin. He was tempted with sin, but yet he never sinned. So when we're in that place of being tempted to sin in our anger, Christ knows. He experienced temptation. And that's why we have a faithful and merciful high priest. And as he dwelt among us, we behold his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Father wants us to know that Jesus is the only begotten, that Jesus is loved by the Father so that we understand how much the Father loves us, that we understand what an amazing gift Jesus Christ is to us. And Jesus comes in the fullness of grace and in truth. Notice the order. Grace comes before truth. If truth comes before grace, oftentimes people aren't going to be willing to receive truth. What is grace? Grace is giving something to someone that they don't deserve. So maybe they deserve punishment, they deserve a consequence, but instead they receive a gracious gift. And Jesus comes in the fullness of grace. We don't deserve for Christ to come, but he chooses to come and give us unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. Isn't it the grace of Jesus that won your heart over to the truth of Jesus? But what if you leave out truth? Grace without truth is dangerous, right? What if someone just 
always gets unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor, and they never get the truth. That grace isn't going to result in the freeing, fruitful work that God intended. But what if there's all truth with no grace? Then it's unattainable, and it's difficult to be able to receive. So he comes in the fullness of grace and truth. Verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. The attitude that John the Baptist has towards Christ, making much of Christ. In verse 16, And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. In his fullness we receive grace for grace, or grace upon grace, Grace flowing grace, grace heaped upon grace. It's this never-ending experience of God's grace towards us given in Jesus Christ. All of eternity is going to be discovering the magnitude of God's grace. We're going to understand in a full way what it means that God would give us his son, that all of our sins are forgiven. You may be feeling that God is running out of grace for you. It's not true. In Christ, there's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace for forgiveness of sin, to overcome sin, to deal with difficulties in our lives. Paul was going through physical challenges, and God's answer to him was, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. God had grace for that difficulty, and to be able to experience the grace of God. Well, you may be saying, well, how do I walk in God's grace? It's through humility and faith. We're saved by grace when we see our need for salvation, and we continue to walk in grace, not as we go, well, God, I've got everything figured out, but as we come to the Lord saying, God, I'm broken. I'm making a mess of me. I'm making a mess of others, and I need your help, and I'm believing in your kindness, that you're going to provide that help to me. Continuing verse 16, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses gave the law. The law is based upon your works. If you do your part, if you do your doo-doo, think about that for a few moments. Saturday night, they just didn't get that. But if you do your doo-doo, then you get blessed. If you do your part. But if you don't, then you experience cursing. And that's laid out right in the law, life and death. But with Jesus, all the blessings flow through his finished work upon the cross. So what hill do you live on? What mountain do you live on? Do you live on Mount Sinai? Do you have a works-based relationship with God? Or do you live on Mount Calvary? Do you feel that God loves you more when you read your Bible? That he loves you more when you give, when you spend time in the word? Or do we believe that his love is consistent and we get to respond to it? A grace-based relationship with the Lord. It's really hard to extend grace to others if we don't live in God's grace ourselves. And a way that this might be exposed that I'm living on Mount Sinai is I have a very works-based relationship with others. When they do their part, they have my favor. But when they fall short, They have my condemnation. But when we're in a place of really understanding God's grace in our life, it's a lot easier than to extend that to someone else. 
In verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. We haven't seen the father. But Christ in human flesh came to reveal the father to us. This is an interesting phrase. Who is in the bosom of the father? What does that mean? That Jesus is in the chest of the father. It shows us the relationship between the father and the son. The way the father would, would hold their child, and the child's there in the warm embrace of their father, and and Jesus is in that place of affection of the father, and he's come to declare the father, to the point where Jesus says, if you have seen me, you've seen the father. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the express image of the father. If you've got a coin, and you put it into some clay, and that clay is the express image. One of the things that I've noticed is oftentimes we have a hard time relating to God as our Father, our Heavenly Father. But it's not so difficult for us to relate to Jesus. And we have one image and understanding of Jesus, and we have another image and understanding of the Father. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven. But yet, sometimes it can be difficult to cry out to God as Father. Like if you were to start your prayer as Father or Dad or Papa, would it feel strange to you? Is it much easier to start off your prayer as God or Lord? That's fine to do that, but Jesus is saying, look, you need to relate to him as your Father. You need to relate to him as your Dad. Romans 8 tells us that we get to cry out to God as as Abba Father, as, as Daddy Father. And so if you find yourself in a place where you appreciate Christ and understand that Christ loves you, you need to apply that to the Father as well. And you maybe need to step back. I need to step back and say, do I have the wrong understanding of the Father? Because Jesus is the express image of the Father. So if I have all of this appreciation and relatability to Christ, that should carry over into my relationship with my Father. Doesn't that make sense? And I know many times the difficulty is because of our human fathers. And if your human father provided pain in your life, but you've got to understand that your human father is not your heavenly father. And I also want to share with you that this struggle is not unique to just not having a good human father. I've got a great dad. He's a real blessing in my life. And it's still difficult for me to relate to God as my father. It's some work to say, okay, I really get this, and I understand that you're my father. I believe the enemy really wants to attack this in one way or the other. He does not want us to know how much our father loves us. Jesus knows how much the father loves us, and he came to express the father and bring us into relationship with the father. So here's the application this morning. It's pretty simple. Today's a perfect day for it. As we've got some fresh snow is brew a fresh cup of coffee. If you don't drink coffee, may today be your first day. (laughs) No, make some tea, all right? I don't know, just sit down, get a comforting beverage, and read through John 1, 1 through 18. Meditate upon it. And as you think about it, then begin to pray and say, Jesus, thank you that you're God. Thank you that you created all things. Thank you that you dwelt among us. Thank you that I am the child of God. 
If you haven't received Christ as your Savior, if you haven't made this decision to trust Christ for salvation, as we sing this last song, we've talked about the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. You know whether you've received him through faith. And as we sing, we'd like to invite you to come forward and talk with someone on the ministry team or one of the pastors and let them know I'm ready to receive Christ as my Savior. I'm ready to put my faith in him and believe that he's God, that he died for me and rose again. Receive that free gift of salvation. Church, also, if you need prayer, I know many of you are going through difficulties. We go through challenges. Because we want to pray with you. The body of Christ is here. If you would like to come and, and receive prayer, take advantage of that opportunity. So gang, let's stand and let's close in prayer. Jesus, we do stand in awe of you. We're so thankful that you love us. We're so thankful that you dwelt in human flesh to die for our sins so that we could be in relationship. Father, thank you that you love us and that expression of your love is through your son. Help us to accurately see you as our dad. And we together as a church family right now say thank you that we are your sons, that we're your daughters. No matter what else is going on in our lives, it's so good to know that we belong in you. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.